Ruth chapter 2 and verse 14, it's up on the screen for you to be able to follow. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some grained rice. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Even if she gathers among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. Rather, pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered and it amounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. Then Ruth, the Moabitess, said, He even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all the grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It will be good for you, my daughter, to go with his girls because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the servant girls of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Well, Redeemed by Love, the story of Ruth, we're going to continue in this story. We've been looking at it over the past two weeks. We come to week number three, and I suppose I want to open by asking Um, What is life uh, in terms of a a successful life or a a life which is uh, satisfying? It's been a question that many people have asked down the years. What is a a, a satisfying life? How do we define it? Uh, There was a a psychologist by the name of, of Maslow, and many of you will have at various stages in training either in uh, colleges or in business training, you'll have uh, come across what Maslow described as a hierarchy of needs. We start right at the very bottom with absolutely essential survival needs. We, We have survival needs, don't we? We all have survival needs. If we can't breathe because we've been uh, thrown into, into the sea or into a river. We, we fight for air. Uh, we will fight for air. We will fight for food. You look around at the various situations uh, around the world, uh, the disasters even recently in Haiti. You see the responses of people who are desperately in need uh, of the very, very basics of survival. You see that we will go to extraordinary lengths just to find food. Uh, Then we need some level of security. We need to know that we can be kept warm. 
we can be kept safe. We then need relationships. We need to have a sense of our own being. And then we have this sense, finally, of fulfillment. What Maslow described this hierarchy, and, and really what he's, I guess what he's saying is this. There's no point trying to make uh, somebody uh, feel secure in a relationship uh, if they haven't got food in their mouth. <laughs> uh, we need the basics first. The problem is, and, and he acknowledged this actually, he recognized that there was a, a problem with his, his idea of what is a satisfying life. He said that when somebody finally gets to uh, this self-actualized final stage where everything else is in place, where all of the other demands of, of our being are, are met, he said there is still this barrier. Uh, we are still... Uh, subject to human imperfections, wasteful habits, vanity, pride, partiality to our family and friends, and temper outbursts. Isn't that interesting? Isn't it interesting that even in that kind of desire to define what is a satisfying life in this world, we still, even without any reference to the way the Bible describes ourselves, we still reach this point where, where everybody recognizes we can't actually live that satisfied life. Even if everything is provided for us, we still finally butt up against the problem of our inner being, the problem of ourselves. It, it, I find it fascinating. Maslow had no reference in that to, to Scripture. He had no desire to turn to what God describes uh, as what we are like. But he did recognize that at the final analysis, the problem that we have is ourselves. It doesn't actually work. We, we, we can't be fully satisfied. But at the same time, we, we do have those basic demands we do have those needs and what we see in this wonderful story is is uh, love as the foundation for provision if we remind ourselves of the situation uh, that we find these two um, heroines of the story and and the hero who emerges more so in this chapter we find uh, Ruth and Naomi uh, younger woman Ruth uh, mother-in-law Naomi They've, uh, Naomi and her husband, Elimelech, two sons, Marlon and Killian, they've, they've moved away. They've left God's land, the land that God had provided for his people. If we know, if we just trace a little bit for ourselves the Bible history, where we find ourselves in the history of, of God's people. You remember that God's people are in Egypt. They're taken, uh, they're freed from Egypt. Uh, and they're, they're established now in a land that God has given to them. The opening of, of Ruth says that it was in the time of the judges. This is before David as king, before any kings, before Saul as king. It's in the time when there were judges. It was in the time when they were living in the land that God had provided for them. In, in other words, they were to understand that the place of safety was the place in which God had given them. Uh, and and uh, Elimelech, in, in a situation of famine, makes uh, a, a decision for his family to take them out of God's provision and take them into a land uh, of Moab. 
uh, a land which is, if you like, marked by uh, a kind of uh, a divergence from God uh, and a land which is marked as not being God's provision. That's the decision that Elimelech makes for their security. The end result is that during their time there, Elimelech, Marlon and Killian all die. Naomi is now left with her two daughters-in-law, Marlon and Killian have married in Moab to Moabite S women, uh, Ruth and Orpah. And Naomi persuades Ruth and Orpah to stay home. Naomi's going to travel back to her land. She persuades Orpah and Naomi, uh, Ruth to stay with their families. Orpah agrees. Ruth says, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. That was the, the brave statement that Ruth commits herself to Naomi. But in that commitment, she is not simply making a commitment to, to, to Naomi. But she's actually making a commitment to the God of Naomi. She's saying, I've seen something in you. I've seen something in this family. Please do not separate me from the hope in this living God who I have got to know. You will all be in different situations. Uh, Some of you will be in a point of saying, I've I've seen in lives around me, friends, maybe people who you've met in this uh, environment in the the church here at Escape, uh, you've seen uh, the impact of the living God in lives. You're actually able to see uh, the, the, the effect of, of the presence of God, not in some sort of uh, weird supernatural way, but just in the simple, ongoing life that people leave, you live. You've seen a difference. You've seen that people uh, uh, deal with issues in a different way. And Ruth has reached that point and has said, I want to commit to that God. I, I give myself to a God who I have come to see through my mother-in-law, Naomi. And so they travel back. And uh, we found last week that Ruth then puts her life on the line. She puts her dignity into her hands and she goes out to glean. She puts herself in a dangerous situation. She goes out into the fields. They are desperate. They are at that bottom level, that bottom stage in, in terms of Maslow's needs. They are on death's door. You know, that we, we very often have the idea of this as a pretty little scene gathering a little bit of corn in the fields. And we remind ourselves again, uh, Ruth and Naomi are on death's door. They, she is willing to risk uh, physical abuse, potential rape, uh, all sorts of things to get some food out in the fields gleaning. On a number of occasions we read that Naomi encourages her to stay in a, pl- a place where she will find safety. In other words, you are in a dangerous place going out, but I know that we've got no choice but for you to put your neck on the line. What a commitment Ruth is making here. And so she finds that she goes out uh, and she, she finds herself. And this is what we, we saw last week, very much similar to what we were looking at this morning, if you were uh, uh, at Pontecorect this morning. She finds herself in the field of Boaz. She just finds herself there. She's not planned it. She's not gone uh, onto Google Maps and Googled Boaz Field. 
uh, and found the, the right location and made sure that she's in the right place. She's just found herself there, did she? Or did God find her there? That's the message that we saw last week. God found her and brought her to the place where she, she comes into contact with this, this hero, Boaz, who starts to make provision for her. And what we see here, as this, as this story now unfolds, as we start to look uh, into these verses, we see uh, the beginnings of the overflowing of kindness and provision from Boaz. First thing that we see uh, is we see a relationship going on for a start. Uh, and, and on one level, as we saw it last week, I, I think we can see here in this story, guys, how to be a man. How to be a man. Uh, and secondly, uh, we see how to be a woman. Now, one of the things that we commit ourselves in looking at the Bible is that if it is God's Word, if it is the way God has communicated to this world and to his people, then it must shape us. It must kick us about a bit. It must knock us into a different shape than we would tend to be naturally. We must be challenged. If God is going to speak to us, he must challenge us. We very often want a God, don't we, who is not going to challenge us. A God who fits into our demands, but that is no God. A God who is going to reshape us. A God who is going to change the way we behave as men and women towards each other. Because after all, right at the very beginning of the Bible, we remind ourselves, that's where the problem is. Uh, our relationships with God are broken, and therefore our relationships with each other are about broken. We look around in society today, and we see the disasters of broken relationships. I'm not just talking about uh, broken marriages and the likes. I'm talking about just the basic inability for men and women to relate to each other. It just, we just don't do it. We, can, we can't do it effectively. We, 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 we are filled with the problem that we saw right at the beginning of time. We are filled on both sides with a sense of pride, uh, a sense of insecurity. Uh, and this story must at least address, cause us to rethink, be challenged. How am I to live as a man? Let's see how Boaz responds. The first thing that we see here, it was mealtime. And uh, it would seem, wouldn't it, as though there's a hierarchy. As we read this story, there's a hierarchy. There is Boaz. He's the boss. He's come down from, uh, from Bethlehem. He's traveled down to the field some, a few miles outside of Bethlehem. There's, uh, there's been this greeting between the harvesters uh, and Boaz. Uh, and then we see that there is, there is a hierarchy going on in the field. There is the harvesters. And then there are the, the, the girls who are gleaning, who are, if you like, attached to Boaz's family. They're the next ones down in this hierarchy. And then we have, finally, it would seem, those who just wander around fields and try to glean wherever they can. That's the hierarchy that we see in this story. Boaz goes out and he greets his harvesters. He asks his, his, uh, his hired men, who's that? The men of his household, who's that? She's, he's told, oh, it's, it's Ruth who came back with Naomi. 
Uh, and so he starts to make provision for her. At this point, it's now lunchtime. Maybe it's evening. You know, people work from the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun, but it's time to eat. And um, what we see Boaz doing is he, he, he does a quite remarkable thing. It, uh, on the face of it, it just looks as if he, he does what we would expect. But culturally... He breaks all of the accepted rules. Here he is. He sat with his, uh, with his harvesters and he, he calls Ruth. He says, come and sit with us. Come and sit with us. She's outside of that family. She's outside of that community. And she's a foreigner. What's more, she's the, uh, she's the, now, she's the widowed daughter, sorry, the widowed wife uh, of a family who had left God's presence. As far as the cultural accepted is concerned, Naomi and Ruth, particularly as a foreigner, are outcasts, separated shunned, if you like, Ruth would be just the kind of person to be left way on the outside. She would be just the kind of person who would be almost expected culturally uh, to receive at least verbal abuse. And yet, look at the behavior of Boaz. Come on, come and sit with us. It's remarkable. I mean, it's not just, it's not just big-hearted, is it? It's, it's, it's just chivalrous. It's just manly. It's just good to see. That there is something so appealing, isn't there? There is something so wonderfully uh, appealing about the kind of uh, behavior that says, come on. Come and sit over here. Let me protect you. Can you imagine Ruth? I would imagine she would have been so timid, uh, so shy, as she went and she sat uh, uh, within that group, feeling uncomfortable. Uh, I'm sure you've felt that at times. Feeling uncomfortable. Feeling unsure. Feeling small and and, and an outcast and, and outside. Uh, And there's another example here, isn't there, uh, of how Boaz shows us how to behave. Because while she's feeling on the outside, he welcomes her in, and then what does he do? He serves her. He serves her. He provides her with food. He gives her food. Just think about the shift that is taking place. Just think about, I can imagine that that some of the, some of the um, harvesters, maybe some of the servants, would look on aghast at what was going on here. As we see the boss passing over to Ruth, serving Ruth with some roasted barley. And not just that, but giving her sufficient to feed, us, feed her fully, and then not being embarrassed 
that she takes home a doggy bag. Because <laughs> that's exactly what she does. She has plenty to eat. In fact, she has so much. She's given so much that she takes some extra away and Naomi eats it in the evening. Talk about abundant provision. And that wouldn't have been, that wouldn't have been something that, that Boaz wouldn't have noticed. And yet for him, it was just a privilege. It was a pleasure for him to be able to give in that way. So he serves her. He, he welcomes her. He draws her in. He serves her. And then he protects her. Look at what he, what he does. He then he goes and says to, to his man, he gives orders to his man. We read, even if she gathers among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. You know, what the, the idea would be there would be a row of harvesters. They would be working up the field. Uh, then behind that, there would be the, the gleaners of Boaz's uh, team, if you like, Boaz's household. Uh, and then behind that, there would be the, the second grade gleaners. Uh, and I, I guess that some of the men, some of these gleaners, the second grade gleaners, first grade gleaners rather, the ones of his household, they might get a little bit too close and try to uh, collect some of the heart, harvest too close to the men and they've been told, told to skedaddle, get out the way. Uh, and yet what Boaz does is he says to the men, don't embarrass her if she gets too close and starts to collect too much. In fact, I want you to not just not just be kind, not just protect her, not save her face, hide her shame. I want you to go even further. What I want you to do is when she gets close, I want you to pull up some stalks. And rather than collecting them in, I want you to drop them on the ground so that she can collect them. At the end of the day, Ruth has collected an ephah of grain. She takes it home to Naomi, who is just blown away. An ephah of grain is just an extraordinary amount to have collected in a day's gleaning. Beyond the, the wildest dreams, probably setting them up in one day for maybe a month's worth of food. It's the kind of picture that we see here portrayed. Why is it that Ruth has been able to gather an ephah of grain? Well, for a start, because she's been a diligent worker. She's been a good woman. She's been a woman who's been committed to what she said she's going to do. She's been honest. She's been trustworthy. She's been faithful. She's, she's a mark of what it is to be a woman uh, in that cultural context. Uh, but she's also been a woman who has been, who's come under the umbrella of provision. Now that, that shakes us. It shakes us as guys. Because our tendency as men is to self-satisfaction uh, and to self-fulfillment. In fact, that's one of the problems that Maslow recognized. Uh, and yet what this tells us is that the way to be a man is not to self-satisfaction, but rather to self-sacrifice, 
to giving abundantly, to protecting, to providing. You know one of the hardest things though, girls? One of the hardest things is to say thank you and accept it, isn't it? Here's Ruth. Uh, she doesn't, just doesn't say, look, I, I, hey, whoa, hold on a minute. I'll be, I'll be all right. I, I don't need that kind of help. You know, I, I'll be all right. There, there is a relationship that is building here, the one that, one that is able to say thank you and one that is able to say, I'm going to protect you. I'm here for you. I will sacrifice myself for you. It will be at my cost for you to be well and for one to be saying, and I'll accept that. Naomi asks her, I mean, I can imagine Naomi's face. For a start, she sees Ruth come through the door unscathed at the end of the day. She's safe. And then she sees the amount of food that she actually brings back. And she's blown away. How have you managed to collect so much food? Where have you been blessed in such a way to have been given so much provision and to have come back unscathed? We see that she says, Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, said Naomi. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. That man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. And at that moment in time, this, this verse is almost the turning point for the book, really. It's almost the turning point for the story. Because Naomi sees a glimmer of hope more than she could have imagined, more than she could have dreamed of. Uh, she, she had it out there. She mentions the possibility of Boaz. See if you can find Boaz Field. But that, you know, uh, th- there's no signposts that say Boaz Field here. Uh, and, and yet she finds herself there and Naomi sees kindness from Boaz. There is hope in their desperation. In the face of death, there is the possibility of life as far as Naomi is concerned. There is the possibility that we might get through this, she says. Blessed be him. He is our kinsman redeemer. In, in those days, the, the, the pattern was that if... if um, the closest relative to a person who had died would, t- would marry uh, the widow. It, would, it was effectively, if you like, uh, the welfare state situation uh, of the day. It was the way in which provision could be made. Everything in, 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 a, in a male-dominated society, uh, in, in that kind of environment... Uh, everything was, uh, was owned by men. Uh, work was, was done by men and provision was made for women. Uh, and, and therefore, a woman who was outside of that kind of care, outside of an umbrella of care, in a relationship, was without hope. She was going to die. Or she was going to end up in some sort of life where a dignity would be lost to survive. 
Uh, and here we see that Naomi says, this, this one is a kinsman redeemer. This is somebody who is close enough in relationship to be somebody to marry. But come on. We've stepped out of God's provision. We've done all of the things for him to take no responsibility, to not feel any sense of responsibility. And yet, in Naomi's mind, maybe he still does. Maybe there is still some kindness from Boaz. There is something that we see as Boaz's relationship towards Ruth flourishes in the way that he provides and protects and the way that love kindles here. There is something that gives Boaz a great sense of appeal, doesn't it? We look at Boaz as somebody who gives in this way, somebody who provides in this way, and we are drawn towards him. Why is it that we're drawn towards him? What is it about Boaz that makes us warm towards him? Well, we should. You imagine what we've seen. A man who walks to the field uh, and has the confidence to just shout a greeting to his harvesters. And they greet him back. A man who is so secure in his position that he's able to sit down in the fields with his harvesters and eat with the harvesters. A man who's so secure in his position, in his responsibility, in his, in his relationship, that it's no issue to him to serve a, a young foreign girl with food. Somebody who's so secure. He knows who he is. He doesn't have any need to, to prove his identity. He knows who he is. And yet, that, that sense of self-identity is used for the good of somebody else. There is something remarkably appealing about that, isn't there? Somebody who, who has the ability to do something, who has the power to do something, the, the authority to do something, and also has the, the self-security to be able to do it himself. It's a wonderful thing. It's a securing thing. But we also believe, don't we, that this isn't just some simple story. We've said time and time again that we have a golden thread running through the Bible. A golden thread that is always taking us, always directing us, pointing us towards something better. His name is Jesus. And Boaz becomes, if you like, a road marker, a pointer towards Jesus. Jesus said this, the Son of Man, talking about himself, did not come to be served, but to serve. I came, he says, not so that you can serve me. I've left heaven. I've left glory, I've come down to this earth, I'm able to say I and my Father are one, I am totally confident, totally secure in my identity, I know who I am, I haven't got anything to prove, 
but I've come to serve you. How am I going to serve? I'm going to serve by, by stripping myself firstly of all of my riches. I'm going to come down and, and be present with you in, in human flesh. I'm not going to come with riches. I'm going to come as a peasant teacher. I'm going to serve by spending my whole life with you, providing for you, feeding you, healing you, giving you an insight of what it is to be like in relationship with me, that there is hope in me. I'm going to provide for you. Does that sound a bit like Boaz? Is Boaz a a pointer towards somebody who can provide in a way that even Boaz couldn't provide? But somebody who is so confident in his self-identity, he can say that I am God himself, I am the son of the living God, but I've come to serve you. I can wash your feet. He can strip off his clothes, wrap a towel around him, and take the feet of his disciples and wash them. And then ultimately he says, I did not come to be served, but to serve. How ultimately does he serve? To give his life as a ransom for many. Talk about service. Talk about confidence in his identity. He knows who he is, Jesus. And because he is so confident in who he is, he has nothing to prove. He can lay down his life. He can serve us. He can provide for us. He can give his life as a ransom for many. He gives his life for those who are the outsider. Just like Ruth, the foreigner to his family. The ones who are separated. The ones who are facing death. The ones who have no hope in this life. He has all of that opportunity to serve and to say, I'm going to welcome you in. I'm going to bring you in. You can be part of my family by me laying down my life for you. I can redeem you. I can, if you like, marry the widow and the widower. You are helpless and hopeless. I can bring you into my family. You can be part of my family, though you don't deserve it. You know, Maslow, I believe, in one sense, had much of what he was striving for and what he was trying to describe. He had a lot of it right. We do need basic provision. We do need security. We do need relationship. We do need a sense of our own identity. We do need fulfillment. The problem that we have in this world is that we continue to try to find it within ourselves. And Jesus says, no. You'll never find it in yourself. You will always be dissatisfied because you will always butt up against the problem of your inner being. But if you look for satisfaction in me, I promise you, I promise you, I will provide for you. And and then we say, well, how will you provide? How will you provide for us? Well, I'll welcome you into my family. I'll allow you to sit alongside me. I'll serve you. I'll feed you. I'll provide for you. And you say, yeah, but, but you know what, Jesus? It looks like that doesn't work because 
I, I know people who've committed themselves like that and they've still gone through terrible times in life and they've ultimately died. And, and you say, no, but look, <laughs> that's not the end of it. That's where the provision really begins. That's where my provision starts. That's where you really sit down with me. That's where you really are fed by me. That's where you really find satisfaction in my provision, in my relationship, in relationship with other people that is perfectly satisfying, in life eternal. You know that, that little moment where Ruth and Boaz are sat around uh, eating uh, roasted barley, where there is relationship, where there is contentment. It's a little preparation for what it will be like forever and for eternity. Not that we'll sit in fields. I don't know, maybe we will. I know there'll be a wonderful new earth that will be totally satisfying. And Jesus will be present with us. And we will eat and we will rest and we will talk and we will find relationships and we will find a life which is satisfying. (laughs) Why? Because Jesus says, I will redeem you I will purchase you into my family in this life so that you might enjoy life eternal. I think maybe one of the hardest things for Ruth when Boaz said, come and sit with us, was the decision to say thank you. I'll move from the outer edge to come in and sit with you. And that's what's difficult for lots of us. To take that step to say, I'll sit in relationship with you. Maybe you're sat on the outside. I want to encourage you. Jesus says, don't sit on the outside. Come and sit with us. Come and sit with me. Come and be fed by me. Come and be provided for by me. Come and live a life which at least at this point is slowly being transformed. But don't think that this is all there is.